Welcome to Two Pint PLC. My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and my CPR certification has expired. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am a yellow belt in Hapkido and Taekwondo. Professional discussions should not be restricted to the workday. This is our after-hours personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. This week, we are drinking O'Fallon's St. Louis Red. Uh, and just point of clarification, it is listed STL Red, but it is a reference to St. Louis. Man, I love me a red. I cannot wait. Uh, I don't have very much experience with red, so this will be a discovery process for me. So today's prompt is about motivation. Why do students do what they do? That question is deceptively complex, because really it opens the door to behavioral psychology, which is a broad and complex topic. So why do students do what they do? We have to understand what's going on with their brain and what's going on with their uh, choices in order to uh, achieve goals and, and, and reach agency in their environment. So where do we begin when we ask the question, why does a student do what they do? You and I are going to really enjoy getting into some of the behavioral psychology being scientists by training, but I think at its core, every teacher is looking for what's actionable from all of this. So when we say a student is unmotivated, we are wrong. Like, they are motivated. The question is, to do what? Their motivation is seeking what goal or what reward. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a good um, landmark piece of research that we reference a lot in both of our classes. I actually got it from you early on in our collegial collaboration and discussion. Uh, we talk about marshmallows. We do. We talk about marshmallows. This is somewhat of a, uh, I would think, a fairly popular behavioral psychology uh, experiment. And it's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. It has been a sort of a landmark study that there have been follow-ups to. And so before we get into shoulds of the classroom, let's do a brief review of the history of this research. So in the 70s, I'm not sure exactly which year, at Stanford, there was a study where they uh, were exploring how uh, students dealt with temptation. They gave the student uh, a marshmallow and they said, you can eat this marshmallow, but if you wait a while, I'm going to leave, and when I come back, I'll bring a second marshmallow. If you haven't eaten the first marshmallow, I'll give you both, and you can eat both. Otherwise, you can just eat this marshmallow whenever you'd like. And the, the researcher left, and they recorded and observed the students handling the temptation of the marshmallow. What'd they find? Well, it makes for excellent internet videos. If you Google marshmallow tests, it's been reproduced since the age of YouTube a lot. And so you can see some really entertaining videos of, of uh, small children in particular struggling and wrestling with that the urge to eat the marshmallow. They smell it. They nibble it. Uh, some of them are very um, very blasé and just, I'm going to eat this right now. Um, uh, it makes for really good video. It's actually born out of a guy that you've referenced before. Piaget did some, some work in 1970, and then this was done in the mid-70s, 74. Uh, and they found that some students successfully wait for marshmallows, some students fail to wait for marshmallows, and upon follow-up and long-term um, tracking of these individuals, they find that there's a, there's a, a significant correlation with uh, a lot of the fundamental hallmarks of 
happiness and success in life as far as earning potential and uh, I don't remember some of the other indicators that were in that money but it wasn't just money it was also um, relationship satisfaction yeah. uh, family life satisfaction just general well contentedness and happiness with their life was highly correlated with the ability to not eat that marshmallow so this was really about delayed gratification and it was it had become the general wisdom as a, as a consequence of this paper, that willpower and the ability to delay gratification is a key indicator of lifetime success. So roll the clock forward. We have this, this ethereal, this occult willpower that we sure hope that we are born with because it is a good indicator of success. Roll the clock forward to 2013 and we see the paper that we're actually discussing today where they inve the researchers investigated where does this willpower come from? Is it something that can be cultivated, or is it something that they just have or don't have? Uh, and we found that it, it's actually it's, it's a lot more well-defined and a lot more emergent than was originally uh, suspected in that, in that uh, original research, what they find in 2013. The question, the updated question they had was why... Do some students fail and some students other? And, and, and what, in our, what, if any, environmental factors can play a role in that? And uh, they presupposed something that, that not all adults do, was that children, maybe they are making rational decisions after all based on the information and, that they have. So if they're making a rational decision, maybe they're basing their choices on some external factor. And so they tested the reliability of the reward, the reliability of the environment. How did they set up the experiment to do that? So basically, they recreated the original marshmallow experiment, but with uh, one tweak, one change. For some students, uh, for some uh, children, these are relatively young children, they uh, demonstrated for them that adults can be trusted. The, the adult told them they would do something, and then they did it. They did it as described, and then conducted the marshmallow experiment. For the other group, they had the adult say that they would do something. Hey, I'm going to, I don't remember what it was. I'm going to give you, provide you some art supplies to play around with. And they said, oh, sorry, I don't have them. You're not getting that thing. And then did the marshmallow experiment. And they found that treatment mattered a lot. That treatment really affected the way the children behaved in response to this new proposed reward they were going to get from this adult. And by mattered a lot, it was... The difference was pretty impactful. The group of elementary school kids that were uh, experiencing the unreliable researcher gave up and tapped out and ate that marshmallow after an average of three minutes and two seconds. Whereas the students who were exposed to the reliable researcher and expected a reli reliability of reward uh, waited an average of 12 minutes and two seconds. One out of the 14 in the unreliable condition waited the max 15 minutes and got that second marshmallow. Nine out of the 14 in the reliable condition waited max time and got that second marshmallow. So what does this mean for the ethereal willpower that was originally identified in the 70s is then the question. So, so what? So if I am reliable, somebody believes in me, and if I'm not reliable, somebody doesn't believe in me, what, what can we do with any of that information, I think, is now the question. So what does delayed gratification then have to do with our classroom? How is eating the marshmallow relevant to what we do in our classroom. 
but it always goes back to our goals. We want to encourage them to struggle through disequilibrium in order to develop their schema of whatever content or concepts we're working on. But that requires some delayed gratification. The satisfaction for working through that state of disequilibrium comes from developing competency, but it doesn't come instantly. Growth requires struggle. So if they are not, if they do not believe that there's going to be a reliable competency payoff at the end of this struggle, they're more likely to tap out. But if they believe that there will be a reliable payoff, they're more likely to stick to it. So how does that work? It comes back to an original body of work that suggests that people are actually pretty good at making predictions for future events when they have a deep background familiarity with that event upon which they can fall back. We don't always uh, articulate our understanding of those events with statistical reliability and numerical description, but it's been found in a number of studies, and I'm citing from a a book that I read recently, Algorithms to Live By is the book that I I read, uh, that described a research space that suggested that people are really close to making optimal predictions for events on really small data sets when they know a lot about that space. For instance, if, uh, if I'm asked to predict how long somebody will live based on how old they are right this second, I can make a really good estimate for that, for the actual answer to that problem. And it's, it's bizarre because that's so little information, it's almost offensive that somebody can make a good prediction about that. And our students have a lot of information about what happens in our school system. So let's imagine a specific student. I had a student, uh, I taught honors biology for the first time in my career this past school year. Uh, And so I had freshmen who were coming in and I thought this is their first exposure to biology, but they've had eight, nine, 10 years of formal schooling to this point. And so they've got a lot of information about teachers telling them things and then stuff happening after they're told that. Uh, And it's not always the same. It's not always consistent, especially in the honors environment. A lot of my students have been told, you have to work hard. But what they actually meant was, you have to do what I say a lot, which is not necessarily the same thing. And you say struggle, growth requires struggle, but that's not always what's incentivized in their past experiences. So I had one student in particular who it took her three quarters of time in my classroom of her seeking the specific steps required to get the points in our class before she was willing to take a risk and say, if you tell me I will struggle, I will be safe and I will get better and I'm willing to try. It took three quarters of the year for her to be willing to take that risk. But that makes a lot more sense if you imagine she's had eight years of teachers saying that, but then incentivizing her to be to, to be doing exactly what they're told. So. All of our work in our classroom is set within a much broader context for each individual student. So what's going on in the heads of those individual students? Why was that student so resistant to falling in line? I mean, if her history is rich with do what the teacher says and we're going to get we're going to get we're going to get the grade. And she comes to you and you say, you've got to struggle before you can get the grade. Why didn't she just say, okay, I'm going to struggle before I get the grade? We actually had a watershed moment where she was planning a project. And she came to me with a fully typed up proposal for her project. She said, here is a thing that I can do. 
I know the answer to this project already. I can do all of this and meet all the expectations you've given, and I will get full credit. She said that to me. She's like, I know how to do this. I will solve this problem. But this is boring. And I'm not gonna, I am not gonna be challenged when I do any of this. Here's what I actually want to do. And it was research grade genetics, folks. It was something that was far beyond her capability. She said, this is what I want to do, but I have no idea how I will do it. It's entirely possible I'll fail. I don't want to fail this project, but if I can safely take this risk, I want to. And she was just honestly asking me, if I take this risk, am I going to be punished? Am I safe? to do something where I might fail, but I will grow versus doing something that I know I can succeed at, but I will, I will, I will struggle none. Threatened. They, the students are always seeking behavior to avoid threats. We, we are all always seeking behaviors at, to avoid threats. We can't stop trying to avoid threats. Our brains always are trying to avoid threats. Um, so, what is that about? Well, there's a part of our brain, the part of our brain called the amygdala. And that part of the brain is constantly scanning for threats. And it doesn't know the difference between the physical threat and the social threat. So, if the student is going to do something that makes them look stupid, their amygdala tries to catch that threatening behavior and stop it by releasing something in their brain called cortisol. What does cortisol do, Ralph? Well, what's interesting is this is a part of our really primitive structure in our brain. So it's something that arose long before we had higher thought. It's called the reptilian brain, colloquially. So uh, lizards can do this too. And so what it does is it, uh, it directly triggers what are behaviors that last time I experienced a threat made me not die. That's really what it's about. And so it triggers which of those behaviors can I implement right now quickly and and efficiently and completely so that I have the highest likelihood of not getting eaten, not getting impaled, not dying of starvation, not being uh, expelled from the tribe, whatever the threat is. What behavior algorithm can I execute that will keep me safe? And we've seen this in our classroom. If you watch a student who walked in uh, and sat down and looked at a, an exam for which they are not actually prepared, you can see the look on their face where they say, oh my God, I don't know this. And then they can't even write their name at the top of the paper. That's the cortisol. Cortisol heightens your ability to perceive your environment so that you can search for these survival behaviors, but they kind of get in the way of some of that higher order thinking. So when you want them to access some of that complex schema and articulate something about the relationships between the socioeconomic circumstances that contributed to the Civil War, they're not going to be able to access that if they're totally freaking out because they've got cortisol pumping in there. So you, it's the deer in the headlights look, and we see it in our classrooms all the time. We're really familiar with it. So if they're trying to avoid these situations, how can we get them onto the path of struggle safely? What can we leverage in their, in their brains to help avoid this deer in the headlights situation and bring them to the safe place to struggle through disequilibrium? So there are other structures in our brain that are designed similarly to promote 
uh, effective behaviors or to promote survival behaviors, our septal nuclei are involved in releasing another transmitter called dopamine that says when we get better at something, we want to do that thing more. When you harvest resources, we want more resources, do it again. When you successfully attract a mate, we want more mating, do it again. And so it releases this neurotransmitter that, oh my god, you guys, dopamine feels so good. It is arguably the only thing you like. I like playing video games. And there are video games that I'm really good at. And I like playing those video games. Because when I see myself improve, get a new high score, defeat a new level, get some new achievement, I'm like, I'm even better at this than I thought. Boom. Dopamine is happening in my brain. I feel good. And it happens in our classroom also, whether we want it to or not. So you imagine a student who perhaps you would describe as being unmotivated because they're sitting in the back of the room and they're drawing instead of considering whatever discussion's going on. I'm willing to bet if you go look at that drawing, they're improving their drawing skills. They're saying, wow, that face is particularly interesting and I've got some, some cool coloration going on this time around and I am reproducing the sketch faster than I did before. Or even if they're playing on a phone, they're doing all of those things. They're getting a high score. They're getting to a new level. They are experiencing dopamine for growth. It's just not the growth we want them to be doing. So when we say unmotivated, we just mean motivated to seek improvement in other areas that are not contributing to growing competency in our classroom. The performing arts, they've got this locked down. Students go home and they play their instruments for fun on a pretty regular basis. Athletics have got this locked down when you've got a players only meeting because they want to figure out how to solve the current problem because they want to experience more wins. I want to have more passing yards. I want to have a higher free throw percentage. I want to get a new PR in my running time, whatever it is, we are locked into this because they've got really concrete feedback. Our trick is how can we ensure that they experience the dopamine in our classroom and how can we ensure that they are not escaping threats, that they are not dealing with cortisol bombs when they should be developing competency. Those are really the two problems we've got to navigate if we're going to have motivated students. Which of those you want to talk about first? I want to talk about avoiding cortisol first. Yeah, cortisol is terrible. Cortisol is terrible. Uh, it's terrible for a lot of reasons. That the part of your brain that I think is one of the really one of the workhorses of schema development is your hippocampus, which takes information from the area that you're consciously thinking about. And then it stores it in different parts of your brain. And then when you need that information, it goes to those different parts of your brain and it brings it back out for you to think about it again. The hippocampus, its activity is inhibited by the presence of cortisol, which is why you have those kids that are getting stressed out and have taste test anxiety, and then they can't remember any of the things, and then it just snowballs into something they can't function. The more frequently cortisol is released, the more damage and developmental complications can present in the hippocampus. Oh, and this is not actually bad. You said that it's terrible, but we want to survive threatening situations. So this is, this is not bad or dangerous. If somebody walks up and punches our student while they're taking an exam, we want to shut down their thought process of the Civil War so they can defend themselves or run away. We want that to happen. This is desirable. Our job is to make sure that when we don't want them defending themselves, it doesn't get in the way. Because it literally overrides their brain. There's another story uh, in another book, The Dueling Neurosurgeons. 
that talks about a way that we can see that they are literally different brain processes. There was somebody with brain damage who could say one word. He could only say tan. That was all he could say. Some French dude. He had brain damage. All he could say was tan, even though he knew language in his own internal monologue. However, if he got really pissed off, he could swear fluently as long as it was involuntary. So he would say, tan, tan, tan. And you'd be like, I don't know what you're saying. I'm not feeding you until you figure it out. And he'd be like, tan, tan. And you're like, come on, man. I just need you to say a word. It's not that hard. He'd be like, ah, lords or whatever. I don't remember what it was. It was something in French. But it would be fluent cursing, but only if he was authentically angry. Because those circuits are a different part of our brain that literally override the higher level processes when they're engaged. So we've got to keep them turned off if we want those higher level processes turned on. So what are the types of things in the classroom that typically release cortisol? Because ultimately, that's where our agency is. It's in the classroom and the classroom environment. So what what does trigger cortisol in our students in our classroom? What do you actually do to prevent students from taking cortisol bombs? And what do you actually do to help them experience dopamine on a regular basis? Because this does have shoulds. Yeah. And you have some pretty dramatic shoulds in your classroom, probably more than I have in mine. I don't want my students to ever get used to or feel that it's acceptable to do crappy work. I tell them I would rather you turn in something excellent late than garbage on time. Because I want them to practice knowing what excellence looks like. I've had students come and talk to me and say, hey, Mr. Rutherford, I really appreciate that you're really flexible on this. Right now, um, we are putting on a musical, and this is just a really intense week for us, and we're going to have our shows at the end, and I'm doing all of these extra rehearsals, and it's just madness right now, but I'm gonna, I promise we'll do this next time. And you know what they do? They do finish it later, and it is usually excellent, uh, because they, they know that they can safely put in the time to to invest and struggle through that disequilibrium later. Well, what I think is worth observing in that story is some of you are thinking, I will have students who will use that as an excuse and then not do it excellent later. And you're right. And I have. And I have. But then that consequence is something from their choice. And so it's a, it's a world over which they have control and that helps them develop their own decision-making processes in the future that's not dependent on any of us setting a due date. So I, I think that it's superior in both cases. At the beginning of the year, they may not believe that the struggle will yield competency. But if you don't shut that door and continue to give them that opportunity, when it does happen, you can reward them. And you will begin to develop this space of uh, reliability, which is what they need. There's some super fresh research in this space that, like, we don't even have the full access to the paper yet because it is brand spanking new, but it was a cultural study. They compared some Western-raised children with children raised by Cameroonian farmers. Germans. Uh, Germans, yeah, thank you. Uh, and what they found was the Cameroonian farmer-raised children had remarkably high willpower as measured in this traditional marshmallow experiment. And that pairs with a culturally established expectation 
that uh, the mothers know and and prepare for the needs of the children before they before the children are aware of that need themselves. So the children develop this particularly robust belief in adults and authority figures that they are going to have their best interests at heart and they're going to, they can rely on rewards from their caregivers. I think that translates to our classroom because if we can ensure that the only way you're going to get dopamine is from a growth in competency, then they can focus on growing competency. The problem is how do we establish that at the beginning? In August, I don't have until October, I don't have until November for a student to start doing the work. I don't have that long. So what do I do about that? This is a mess. I mean, we're all over the place. This is so complex. Yeah. We've got mindset stuff that we've got to deal with, which is related to cortisol and dopamine stuff, which is related to the, the delayed gratification stuff, uh, which is eventually is going to get to the practicing knowing stuff which is then going to get to providing feedback and reward reliability. And then we can contrast that with our at-risk population. So, man, we've got so much to do. This is insane. I don't... The scope of this episode just blew up in my head. Uh, so, what Mr. Ralph is getting to is a body of work done by Carol Dweck, uh, colloquially called Mindset. And... Uh, in this work, she describes a general set of attitudes that people have about intelligence. Uh, that the individual is either a fixed or a growth mindset individual, or an attitude, rather. And these, a fixed mindset attitude is one that says intelligence is a um, characteristic attribute that is either present or not at a certain degree. You are this smart, you are that smart, and your competencies in life are going to be determined by that level of intelligence. Whereas the growth mindset is the attitude that, like any physical skill, um, your ability to understand something uh, and achieve competency in something is relative to how much you invest and practice in that particular thing. And these attitudes... Uh, tend to uh, correspond with certain behavior patterns. An individual that has fixed mindset uh, believes that being smart is good, and if they are not smart, they are bad. Very value-rich. And so they engage in behaviors that propagate them looking smart. And when they do that, they get dopamine. Hey, I, I didn't know the answer to this, but I cheated on the test and I got an A. Boom, I got that A. And they get dopamine for that. And all of this is interrelated. So our mindsets are malleable. They can be grown. They can be changed. They can be swayed. All of that attitude is changed and reinforced over time. So when we say we have genius hour, your performance on genius hour affects how much of a genius you are. That validates your amount of genius. When we say, well, they're really a smart kid. They just don't work hard. That validates that you have this desirable fixed quality and so it excuses your not work because you still have that underlying quality of goodness our language our behavior our feedback our attitudes in the classroom some really really subtle details in our social interactions reinforce or prompt revision of this 
conception of reality on a day-to-day basis. It's not trivial. And it's related to how threatened I am by revisions. If I have to change something, my attitude toward that prompt is very different depending on whether I have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, which affects how much cortisol is flooding into my system at that moment, which affects how much I can revise a particular idea at a moment, which affects how competent I will be in the future, which may or may not determine how much of a grade benefit I get in that moment. I'm going to tell you a story about a time that I failed with a reliability schedule. Uh, That is this year, this past year, I had a student who was a strong fixed mindset student. She believed that she was bad at science and that all the other students in the classroom were good at science. As such, she kind of separated herself from the rest of the classroom. Uh, I made some poor choices in handling that uh, and let that continue to persist far longer than I should have allowed it. Uh, So I definitely have responsibility in this story. My classroom does not burden my students with an excess of of out of school work. We have about two tests and maybe one or two uh, large lab reports a semester. So there are maybe three to four grades in a semester. And this student worked very, this student put a lot of time and energy into producing a lab report. But that lab report was not at the quality of submission that it needed to be successful in my classroom. So I provided a large degree of heavy feedback, and I encourage her to come in and have a conversation with me so that we could review the feedback and edit and revise and kind of guide that process so that when she goes, she could be on the right path. She chose not to engage in that process. So she took my written feedback, and she did a revision of the work, and she submitted that. And though there were many things about the work that had improved, there were still many new things that she now needed to address in order to get that paper to the levels of success. So her grade did not improve as a consequence of the revisions that she did. And once that happened, she checked out for the rest of my course. In her education schema, I had become an unreliable reward giver. She had put in a lot of what she thought in her perspective of quality effort into the revisions of this paper and did not receive any kind of compensation for that work. And as such, I lost her for the rest of the semester. She was not engaged for the rest of the semester. When I heard of this paper, it was revelatory to me because I had been struggling with this student the entire semester as in, you know, personally, What could I have done? What should I have done? How could I be different? What will I do in the future? This reliability schedule is now something that I need to consider for students that are in different places in terms of how they're engaging with my classroom. There is, it is not appropriate for me to say there is a one size fits all grading schedule in my classroom. It is okay for me to say, Uh, to be flexible in response to the needs of the students. That doesn't mean I can give this student an A for work that is not acceptable for this student, but it does mean that the way I decide how to scaffold my students should be based on my perception of their judgment of my reliability schedule. Oh man, all right, so we gotta cue some stuff for next episode.
next time we broach this topic because we got other stuff to do. Edit, revise, improve. This will be better in the future. Uh, motivation episode, motivation redux episode thirteen. It'll be better. Uh, yeah, because this is an area where research is ongoing, and we're we're, we're learning more, so it's going to pop back up. It is central to what we do as teachers. So while I want to apologize to you, the listener, because this was a hodgepodge and there's so much that we want to consider further, this is what we know right now. And we'll know more in the future. So I hope you're willing to revise with us. Now we do other stuff. All right, so let's do other stuff. Okay. Content-wise, we haven't gotten into mathematics yet, which kind of bums me out because mathematics is sweet. Mathematics is great. Let's do some math. Especially because statistics has some bearing on this conversation. There's an article written recently, again in PLOS, uh, the Public Library of Science. I don't think I defined that the first time we did this. Uh, And it was an opinion piece about uh, the state of public education on the topic of statistics, and it was a focus on undergraduate work, on uh, on the the higher learning, but I think it's a, applicable to uh, to not only high school, but also intermediate and primary grades. Statistical reasoning and numer- numeracy in general is generally underserved in public education. And so there are problems and there are potential solutions. What is the problem with teaching statistics in public education? Susie Wiles published an article. It's a, it's, it's a book review called A Helping Hand During T-Testing Times. Uh, and it's about, uh, uh, it has some critiques and some possible resources for uh, stats education. But the critique called to my personal experience. In my undergraduate uh, courses, yes, I had a stats course, and yes, it was very algorithm-heavy. And then when I took my advanced stats course as a senior, it was so computationally dense, I felt that it was more a primer for using complex mathematics and stats software than it was actually about understanding stats. It was algorithm, navigation, and execution. So, I don't have, I've never really developed a comfort with stats. And uh, there's been a thread that I have, I've heard and discussed that mathematics really should be about helping individuals develop number sense and comfort and uh, arithmetic and, and algebra and even calculus is about understanding relationships between numbers. And stats is about understanding relationships between groups of numbers. To have some of our most influential research have really common statistical analysis errors is really disconcerting. Uh, There was a proposal for this, and it was a proposal that I really liked. And that was that let's get back, let's get away from the algorithms and get more Back to relationships between groups of numbers. Let's get back to that. As a third grader, we don't need to talk about significance. We don't need to talk about hypothesis testing. But here are 10 average 
free throw shooting percentages of basketball players. Here is a random person off the street. What do you think their percentage free throw shooting will be? And then make let them guess. And then compare that to their actual percentage and talk about why were you wrong? What changes would you make? Try it again. Here's another, a random high school basketball player. What do you think their percentage will be? And then let them guess. And then let them talk about the changes that they would make. Versus, what do you think, the, how long will somebody own this car? And then look at how long they owned it. What changes would you make? Here's a pickup truck. Would you make a different guess knowing that information? Just talking about predictions and letting them test that against the outcomes lets them develop that internal sense of a number line, that internal sense of uh, reasoning from groups of numbers that is far more important for making decisions than being able to crunch numbers based on Greek symbols and tensors and calculator operation. Having that internal sense of, I believe that this will be a, a normal distribution versus I believe this is not, this is an Erlong distribution. And they don't even have to know those words. But if they can make predictions from numbers, we are scaffolding them towards a numerical reasoning that is currently absent in our professionals. And now for something completely different. Okay, we're beaten and bloodied, but we've got a non sequitur to consider here. Uh, so let's imagine that there's a big old, there's a, a wealthy benefactor who has left an endowment to provide for our students' uh, college education. Every student at a high school will get this check cut to them. If they choose to go to college, it will defray some of that cost. Uh, but you're the administrator who's deciding when to cut that check. For whatever reason, there are only two options. You can either give the check at the beginning of their high school education. Incoming freshmen get the money. High school? Yeah. Not college. Correct. Oh, changes everything. Proceed. Okay, so my approach to this question differs depending on my priorities. If I'm going to go 100% Machiavellian and my goal is get students to go to college, if that is my goal, I don't care if they're happy about it, I don't care if they're successful, just get this money into the hands of colleges because they, they qualify, then I'm going to give it to them when they first come to this high school. It's going to cause lots of pain and sadness, but that's the point because we know that if I give a baby a lollipop and then take it away, it will cry. But if I never give that baby a lollipop, it won't cry. So the perceived loss of money already had is more dramatic than the perceived gain of money I don't have. A student who is a junior and considering noping a course is going to be more affected by the prospect of having to give money back than the prospect of getting money. So I'm going to give it to them at the beginning so that that money has the greatest influence on their decision-making process and thus is most likely to get them into a college. Why are we being Machiavellian? Why is that going to be the, the justification for how we treat growing people? Uh, we know that the prefrontal cortex, which uh, is the ability to... Which, which one of its functions is to consider long-term consequences and short-term rewards and critical um, uh, reasoning between the consequences of different choices isn't uh, 
completed in its maturity until 25, and it continues to mature toward 25, so the ability of individuals is going to improve as they get older, and the difference between a ninth grader is significantly different than a 12th grader, is significantly different than a college senior. So why would you give a, a component of agency to a ninth grader who isn't mature enough to consider the consequences of their actions and then punitively remove them because they they do the thing that they are biologically predisposed to do and be less effective with their choices. But you know the answer to that. You know the answer to that question. Because they're going to do that. They're going to make those poor choices. And if I don't if I don't care about motivating them and I don't care about I don't care about convincing them to do what I want. I just want them to hit the correct button in the Skinner box. Then this is the most dramatic threat. And the way to escape this threat is to go to college. Which I, as the caregiver, know is the superior decision. I don't have to convince you to do it. I just have to get you to do it. But do they have the agency to use that money now? Yeah, they, yeah, they can do whatever. So they could just ninth grader, becomes 15, soft, becomes a sophomore, learns to drive buys a, uh, uh, a classic muscle car. Yeah, there's, yeah, we have no way to financially prevent that. So then some of those students will do that, will then choose to not go to college for whatever. Like, I got a job, I'm fine, I don't want to go to college. So then they'll have to pay that money back How, like from wherever they've got that money. I, it seems like entrapment. There are going to be a fair number of students who are going to lose that money in non-redeemable uh, capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. All on black. One and done. This is a terrible idea. This is yeah, I didn't say there wouldn't be pain and tears. I actually, yeah, suffering. I really liked this non-sequitur when we were giving the money for scholarship money for kids who are already going to college. We're, and this was about college completion rates. The most, I, I would imagine, and maybe I'm more pessimistic or cynical, the most common consequence of this choice would be to teach them that they make bad investment decisions. Uh, that might be a consequence, but I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's the concern of me as an administrator. Uh, the student who makes the good decision is it any problem of theirs that their classmates are making bad decisions? Well, no, but we're an administrator, and our the consequence of our choices affects all of the students, those that both make good and bad decisions. That's good. That's a good point. My responsibility as an administrator is to the collective effect of my actions. I don't know that I can overcome that obstacle. The benefit of the few is outweighed by the detriment of the many. So the net effect of my decision is an increase in human suffering, which is not my job as an administrator. And that's as stated, the administrator determines what to do. So which action has the greatest net effect? Uh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to overcome that. Um, cool. I don't think we've ever gotten to a place where someone conceded in these before. I didn't like any of that. Uh, what, what about the beer? I thought it was phenomenal. I, this is the first episode 
where I have drank so vigorously that I had to consciously throttle my consumption to have enough to last a reasonable amount of time. I, I like this beer a lot. I was neither impressed nor offended. Uh, it's lighter than I expected. I've had I've had reds with more body than this, but it's got that it's I think it's a barley flavor that's like comes in the middle of the body that I really enjoy in reds. It's why I get excited for them, and that's present in this one. I taste something at the beginning that I don't like very much, but only barely, and then it's pretty clean. It's fine. That's my official review. It's fine. Uh, it bums me out that we can't get this one, get this one in Kansas, because I would drink it again. I would make this a regular in my fridge. Uh, well, then it has an additional value to me as something I can gift to you on special occasions. If you are still with us, thank you. Uh, yeah, I don't know what this is going to sound like in post. We'll do better next time. We will revisit this topic of motivation. Because we need to edit, revise, and improve this discussion. It is rich and heavy. And we want to do it justice. And there is so much more to say. And so many better ways to say it. So we'll try again next time. But for now, struggle well. And discuss research.